This is the Clinical Takeaway podcast from HealthEd, where we interview leading medical experts on important topics that can positively change the way you practice. Here's your host, GP and medical educator, Dr. David Lim. HealthEd's face-to-face seminars are starting up again in 2022. And we hope that you will be able to join us for a day of high quality learning with a lineup of great speakers and important topics in women's and children's health. I'll be chairing a number of these events and I look forward to seeing you there. Register at healthed.com.au. This is the first of two podcasts on the topic of epilepsy. Professor Samuel Bukovic takes us through the basics of epilepsy from diagnosis to treatment, keeping in mind that the correct diagnosis is crucial and how we can now diagnose epilepsy after the first seizure. Professor Berkovic, tell us about yourself. Hello, David. I head the um, Epilepsy Research Centre at the University of Melbourne based at, the, at Austin Health, and I was previously Director of the Comprehensive Epilepsy Program at Austin Health. We're looking at epilepsy as a two-podcast uh, series. In the first, it almost seems as if there's a need to go back to Epilepsy 101. So I'm just going to put before you the sorts of things that are important for GPs to get right. The first is to understand the incidence. The second is what sorts of epilepsy are there out there and how do we correctly diagnose them? Epilepsy is the enduring uh, condition to have recurrent uh, epileptic seizures. And traditionally, it's been diagnosed when a person's had two or more uh, epileptic seizures. We now have a a more wider definition that it can be diagnosed when a patient's had a single seizure, but investigations such as EEG or in some cases MRI um, put the patient at at higher risk of further attacks. It's a common condition, um, although not as common as asthma or diabetes that you'll be encountering in your practices. And the numbers are that the the, the prevalence, the, that is the number of people that have epilepsy at any one time, is, is 0.6%. But the cumulative incidence, that is the number of people that will have uh, epilepsy at some time in their life, is as high as about 6%, and up to 10% of the population will have at least a single seizure at some time in their life. I think I need to ask you, what the difference has been with regard to the past where we needed two or more seizures and what were the diagnostic criteria then versus the single seizure diagnosis? And what do you mean by the, if you like, differentiation uh, using EEGs and MRIs, the high risk uh, recurrent attacks? Okay, I'll deal with the second part first. So If the patient has an EEG and it is highly active with lots of epileptiform activity, or if you do an MRI and there is an overtly epileptogenic lesion, such as a a tumour or perhaps hippocampal sclerosis, then the data suggests that that person is at high risk for having seizures. So we think we're a little cleverer than we used to be in terms of um, 
predicting that the person is going to have that enduring tendency and therefore needs to be considered for anti-seizure medication. And I guess the uh, other one goes back to the criteria for, in the past, yeah. a so look, It's a little artificial. On the one hand, one wants to get the diagnosis right and everybody who has uh, a seizure, the, 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 the person themselves, their family, and indeed the doctor is obviously worried about recurrence. So that is a concern. On the other hand, the diagnosis of epilepsy, unfortunately, carries a really significant stigma, mm-hmm. less than it used to be, but it is still there. And there are clearly implications for activities in adults, for driving at all ages, for sort of general safety. So one really wants to be sure about the diagnosis. And there are things that mimic seizures where you don't want to overdiagnose it. Uh, the commonest of that is, is so-called convulsive syncope, where a patient has a syncopal attack due, due to dehydration, marked emotion, um, and then we'll have a period of stiffing and twitching that will be misdiagnosed as an epileptic seizure. So it's important to get the diagnosis right. And with the, with the newer criteria, I think we can be more certain of that. So with the newer criteria, apart from a highly active EEG or a clearly abnormal MRI that shows pathology, are there other criteria that we use? No, they're they're the major ones. Otherwise, one would normally wait for a a second attack if the EEG was normal and the MRI was normal to to make a formal diagnosis of, uh, of epilepsy. The following message is a community service announcement. I'm Professor Andrew Sindoni, cardiologist at Concord Hospital in Wright Hospital in Sydney. I'm talking to you today about the fact that we may be missing aortic stenosis in primary care. New prevalence data actually shows that many severe symptomatic people with aortic stenosis in Australia go undiagnosed or untreated. The prevalence of symptomatic severe aortic stenosis in Australia is about 60,510 people but only 7,073 of those with people with severe symptomatic aortic stenosis receive aortic valve replacement. Certain factors do increase the risk of developing aortic stenosis, and it's what we see every day. Advancing age, people over the age of 65, cardiovascular risk factors like hypertension, diabetes, cigarette smoking, and other conditions, chronic kidney disease, coronary artery disease. If we don't think about aortic stenosis, we're not gonna find it. So if someone reports these sorts of things, grab your stethoscope. Have a listen to their chest. Maybe you haven't listened to their chest for a long time or ever because they've you know, not come to you very often or they come with other reasons. This is a condition in which we can intervene. We can make a difference with surgical aortic valve replacement and nowadays with modern therapies with transcutaneous aortic valve implantation. This has now been extended to older people who previously would have been felt to be not suitable for surgery. You say, oh, that person's old and they're not going to survive an operation. This is not a general anaesthetic operation necessarily. It's a procedure which is done under sedation, and local anaesthetic in the femoral artery, and this can make a huge difference to symptoms and survival, keeping people out of hospital, and really make a difference to their quality of life. If you think someone has aortic stenosis when you listen to their heart, or if they have those symptoms of shortness of breath, fatigue, syncope, chest pain, if you listen to the heart and you hear a murmur, either refer them for an echocardiogram or send them to see their cardiologist. Listen, suspect, refer. Which epilepsies are more common in our society? 
Well, we broadly divide epilepsies into focal and generalised. Focal, where the epilepsy begins in a particular part of the brain, particularly the temporal or frontal lobes. Uh, and that accounts for about 60% of people with epilepsy. And then there's generalised epilepsy, where it, it begins simultaneously on both sides of the brain. Uh, and that's responsible for 20 or 25% of patients with epilepsy. And the remaining 15 or 20% um, are still sort of unclassified, usually because you just don't have enough information. We make that dis the distinction between focal and generalised based on the seizure patterns and the EEG, and in some cases, the MRI. I guess what's important for us as GPs and our patients is if we diagnose a focal or a generalised or an unclassified epilepsy, what does it really mean for the patient and what should be our focus be as a GP? So, I mean, the implications are as follows. First, uh, for, for um, prognosis, the, there are benign and nasty forms of both focal and generalised epilepsy, so one doesn't necessarily know it at the beginning. When a patient's diagnosed with focal epilepsy, you need to have a sufficient so you need to have a suspicion that there may be an underlying lesion. So imaging is really mandatory in patients with, with focal epilepsy to make sure it's not a presentation of a, of a particularly a neoplasm, but it can be much more benign uh, structural abnormalities. And thirdly, and perhaps you know, pragmatically for almost all patients, the type of epilepsy and the seizures that are presenting as the type of epilepsy uh, dictate the drugs of first choice. So um, typically in generalised epilepsy, um, sodium valproate is the traditional drug of first choice, although we have concerns about that in women of childbearing age because it's teratogenic, so you've got to be very careful, but certainly in males it will remain the drug of first choice. Um, and in focal epilepsy, we generally go to a different class of drugs and Traditionally, um, that has been carbamazepine, which is regarded as the drug of first choice for focal epilepsy. But there's a whole slew of new drugs which probably offer advantages over carbamazepine in terms of uh, side effect profile. So one really finesses the choice of drug de depending on the exact diagnosis. I suspect that making that choice of a drug remains more in the hands of the neurologists or do you expect GPs to be prescribing them? No, I, th I mean, un un unless the GPs are working a lot with people with epilepsy, it it's probably wisest to defer that to the, to the neurology specialist. Which leads me to a point. Do all patients with epilepsy, even especially those that you're not sure of, the ones that you described as the convulsive syncope, do we need to send them off for uh, investigations via neurologists? Well, I would say yes, but that obviously depends on the on the resource setting. Um, one of the things we did at the Austin many, many years ago, and this has now been copied by, by many um, other centres, is develop a so-called first seizure clinic. So we aim to see the patients quickly, get the investigations done quickly, sort out the patients that do not have epilepsy from the ones that 
that do mm -hmm. and for the ones with epilepsy advise on the correct treatment uh, because one of the maxims we teach is that you know the uh, the the overdiagnosis of epilepsy is almost worse than the underdiagnosis so if you diagnose somebody with epilepsy and they actually don't have them ha have it then you restrict them in terms of lifestyle issues and they, you know, the stigmatization, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So my view is that, you know, providing the resources uh, are there, mm -hmm. um, early assessment is really important for people with, um, with a first seizure. Now, when a patient has had a seizure and diagnosed as having epilepsy, uh, what sorts of triggers uh, apart from flashing lights, what sort of things uh, should we be having discussions with the patients about? Okay. Well, the first thing to say is that flashing lights are uh, are exaggerated. Uh, <laughs> there, there, there are there definitely is a group of patients that do have photosensitive epilepsy, mm -hmm. um, but most people with epilepsy that say the seizures are triggered by flashing lights just don't like flashing lights like many other people don't it might just makes them feel uncomfortable or may in fact induce something like a migraine mm -hmm. so flashing lights as as a trigger is real uh but it but is uncommon mm -hmm. um, by far the more important thing is you know more mundane aspects like uh, sleep uh, sleep and, and sleep deprivation. And the, the essential advice that I give to my patients, which some find very difficult to implement, is to get the same amount of sleep at the same time each night. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's sleep interruption and, and sleep deprivation that can be major triggers, particularly for generalized epilepsy, but also for focal epilepsy. Alcohol also is a is, is, is a trigger alcohol in excess. And of course, with partying, the alcohol and the sleep deprivation go together. And equally important, if the patients are on medication, then you know, missing medication and non-adherence to medication is also unfortunately a major trigger. So those three things are, are far more important than flashing lights. And I spend a lot of my time counseling patients about the sort of simple lifestyle issues. Um, and that can lead to major improvements in their in their seizure control, and you know, and, and obviously their, their stress, which you know everybody has and is difficult to avoid. But if the patient's in an unfortunate situation with lots of emotional stress and they're not sleeping and they the tablets are the last thing that they think about, then it becomes a, a perfect storm for a seizure. What about the use of recreational drugs? Are some worse than the others? Alcohol is a problem in excess. Mm -hmm. um, cannabis, as your audience probably knows, is now being used by some to treat epilepsy, particularly CBD. So there's no, there's no strong evidence that abuse of cannabis worsens epilepsy, although THC, the hallucinogen, is, is pro-epileptic. Cocaine, um, narcotics and amphetamines are are quite dangerous in people with epilepsy and really ought to be um, you know, strongly counseled against their use. Sam, uh, we know that high fever in children can trigger epilepsy. Does it happen in adults? So just to get the facts clear, about 3% of children will have a febrile seizure, which typically occurs between the ages of, of six months and, and five years. We don't regard that as, as epilepsy per se and importantly they don't get uh, the stigma of epilepsy and most children who have a febrile seizure 
will not have later seizures, but about 7% do. High fever can occasionally be a trigger in, in people with epilepsy, whether it's the fever per se or the, the illness that goes with it. Intercurrent illness is clearly a, a factor and people are unwell. They may have nausea and vomiting, not keep their tablets down. So it, heat per se is, is not a particular major trigger in adults, but it's, it's obviously very important in children. Lastly, hypoglycemia and the role uh, of medications in causing epilepsy. Uh, so hypoglycemia, when it's uh, extreme, uh, certainly can cause seizures. Whether sort of a, a lowish blood sugar by missing a few meals precipitates it, I think is not really clear. And usually when people are missing meals, their lifestyle's pretty irregular and erratic. I mean, I counsel people to have regular meals, regular sleep, et cetera. But the sort of um, the non-endocrinological non hypoglycemia, if you will, I don't think is well established as a true seizure trigger. What sort of um, level of, if you like, uh, resolution or control can we expect uh, from patients on medications? Good data shows that about 70% of people with epilepsy can be effectively completely controlled on medication, but about 30% are not. And sadly, that number hasn't shifted significantly in the last 30 years, despite the emergence of, of new medication. This is elegant work that's been led by, by Patrick Kwan, who's now in, in Melbourne. And that is a problem. Some of that is due to the compliance issues and lack of adherence to lifestyle, but there remains a significant hardcore of people whose epilepsy remains resistant to our current anti-epileptic drugs. Can we identify them or it's, there are no risks? Uh, so, I mean, early identification of that's actually quite challenging, but the normal procedure now, once a person's been diagnosed with epilepsy, is to commence an anti-epileptic drug. And once they've been shown to be refractory to two or more drugs, uh, despite appropriate doses and, and with um, good evidence that the lifestyle issues have been adhered to, then they're, then they're regarded as having drug-resistant epilepsy. Uh, and one might then consider looking at other, other options. And there are quite a number of other options. Normally, that would, of course, be the, um, the sphere of an of a epilepsy specialist or epilepsy centre. Uh, the most successful is resective surgery, if a clear focus can be identified. That, that's a big step. But um, when, it, uh, when it works, it works extremely well. Um, and then there are a number of other approaches, such as neurostimulation, the most widely used being vagal nerve stimulation, where the patient has a, um, a stimulator implanted in the suprascapular region and they have a, a sub, uh, subcutaneous electrode attached to, a, to the vagus nerve in the neck. So it's surgery, but it's not intracranial surgery. That's, that, that has some effect. And then there are more, a, a, more invasive uh, strategies like deep brain stimulation. There's also the ketogenic diet. And this is a treatment that developed in the 1920s and then has gone through various cycles of, being, of enthusiasm and abandonment. But now there's been much more serious scientific study of the diet 
and it's been clearly shown to be helpful in, in some patients, particularly in children, but, but it's tough to adhere to the diet. It's not just a matter of cutting down on your carbs a bit. It has to be um, a diet that actually induces ketosis. Having said that, I'm getting quite excited because very recently, Diabetes Australia put forward a new position statement on type 2 diabetes remission, and they actually did quote the ketogenic diet as one of the ways of achieving uh, remission. So does this actually work in adults with um, epilepsy? Look, the studies in adults are not that good. Um, It does tend to help some patients. Mm -hmm. To do, as I say, to do it really well is is, is quite tough, and it's a, you know it's a reasonably restricted diet. But there's been you know advances, and there there are cookbooks now and on the ketogenic diet that uh, make the food a lot more a lot more palatable. And in some patients, yes, it does work, but but it's still not widely used in adults. Comes the hard question now, Sam: Do people still die from epilepsy? Yes, they do, um, and this is this is a hard question to discuss with patients and families. Uh, one one can die from a you know a very prolonged seizure or, or status epilepticus. One can die from injuries uh, sustained due to a due to a fall with ep- with epilepsy or a motor vehicle accident if you're if the patient's in, inappropriately driving. But the sort of um, the hidden beast has been what's called SUDEP or sudden unexpected death in epilepsy. And and this is a a terrible phenomenon where, you know, you see a patient visit after visit over a number of years and, you know, then they don't come back and you learn that they were found dead in bed. So this phenomenon has been hard to study, but there's been a great deal of interest in it more recently. The the figures are that overall approximately one in 500 people with epilepsy will die of SUDEP per year. So uh, the average patient, it's 500 patient years, but there are risk factors, and those risk factors are tonic-clonic seizures, um, severity of the epilepsy, and in very severe patients with epilepsy, the risk is as high as about one in 100 per year. So all sort of epilepsy clinics and epilepsy specialists see this unfortunate phenomenon of patients not um, of, of being found dead, typically in bed. The mechanism of this remains unclear. Where they're carefully witnessed, then nearly always there's a seizure beforehand. And we believe that there's a sort of a cardiorespiratory collapse after certain seizures that's probably brain initiated and they end up having a, a cardiorespiratory arrest. It's clear that people with epilepsy who sleep alone or um, are at higher risk of this, and it seems that even you know minor stimulation at the end of the seizure um, serves to potentially prevent it. But we're vigorously now looking at better ways to predict and prevent SUDEP. There used to be, and in terms of discussing it, um, there used to be um, a sort of... Um, uh, don't speak, don't tell sort of attitude to this, which is clearly wrong. Um, many families are extremely bitter if they were never warned about this and their their loved one has died of it. So now it's generally part of, um, you know, epilepsy education to make patients aware of this phenomenon. I'm so glad you made that point, Sam, because it's not an easy conversation. I suspect no. that it's going to be the specialist to 
bring up those topics because GPs may not know enough. And I do make a declaration uh, quite publicly that um, um, a few decades ago, I did lose a very dear friend from epilepsy who was found dead uh, in, the, in the toilet. And it remains with me today that I was a friend. I was, I am a doctor and I could not, I did not understand it. I didn't counsel the patient or the family. It wasn't the patient, it's a friend, really. And yeah. I, still lives, I still live with it. Yeah, no, that's hard. So, I mean, the conversation is challenging. Sometimes, unfortunately, particularly with younger patients, it can almost, it's perhaps inappropriately used as, as a stick to get them to take their tablets. You know, you know, you can die from this, but I think it, it's got to be handled in a, in, in a more subtle way. But to make people aware of it and to encourage them to sort of be compliant with their medication and with the lifestyle rules to, to minimise that, 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 um, that chance. I'm glad we touched on that topic because uh, it's a, such an important one. We have mentioned lifestyle for the patients. Are there other things a patient can do to help with, if you like, um, in the control and management of their own epilepsy? I think we touched on the major ones. It's really you know, regularity of sleep, um, avoid, you know, minimization of, of alcohol, avoidance of, of, of illicit drugs and where, where possible, you know, minimisation of stress, although we all have our ups and downs in, uh, in our lives that you, you can only regulate it so much. So, Professor Berkovic, what are your final messages to our GP listeners with regard to epilepsy? Thank you, David. The, the, the final messages are to be aware of epilepsy and, and obviously consider that diagnosis where there are unexplained uh, episodes of loss of consciousness and, and obviously obvious convulsions, uh, and then to get them investigated uh, properly, um, depending on the circumstances by yourself or by referral to a, a neurologist or, or an epilepsy centre. And this should be done early, um, really after the first event to get the, get the patient sorted out, get them diagnosed, and where appropriate to get them on appropriate treatment. Thank you very much, Professor Berkovic. My pleasure, David. You have a very good day. Same to you. Bye now. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast, where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.